Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, the, um, the first verse I'm reading today is from Psalms, all of Psalm 41, verses 1 to 13, obviously. Page 391 for the Bibles at the back if you don't have one, or pull up on your digital or paper, whichever you prefer. Give you a couple of seconds to bring it up. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. And he goes out and spreads it around. All of my, all my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I might repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Hmm. Next verse is uh, Mark 14, verses 1 to 26. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared for the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thank you, Nick Rumer, for reading. Uh, please keep open in front of you Mark 14, that reading we just had. We're going to explore particularly the first 11 verses of that, and then after the message today, we're going to um, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which we do every week. But uh, those words, the last part of that chapter, are really all about the first Lord's Supper. Uh, and we're going to sort of think about it in that context there. Um, if you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. I'm lead pastor here, one of the elders here at our church. It's good to see you this morning. If you're visiting or new, a warm welcome to you this morning. Uh, we'd love for you to stick around for poke. Are they poke bowls? Are they, is that what they're called? Poke? Poke bowls? Bowls of beautiful food after our service today. Uh, free lunch on us. Uh, please do stick around if you can. Uh, just to, because I know you all like talking amongst each other, I thought I'd just ask you all a question to start with, and I want you to turn to the person next to you and sort of ask it to the other person if you don't want to answer it, um, get in fast. Uh, but here's the question. How do you express your love for Jesus tangibly? How do you express your love for Jesus tangibly? Does that make sense? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might want to ask the person next to you, what does that look like for you? And they might give you some insight into what it looks like. But uh, take about, I'll give you 74 seconds this morning uh, to turn to the person next to you and think about how do you express your love for Jesus tangibly? Go for it. Go for it. All right, everyone, let me uh, pull you back together. I'll, uh, I will... I won't ask for your responses, but uh, perhaps that'll just sort of set us up to be thinking about this section of God's Word together, uh, Mark 14, verse 1 through to 11. Um, again, have it open in front of you as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, but uh, let me pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Loving Father, uh, we come to you this morning. Um, some of us are tired and weak. For all of us, we've got all kinds of things going on in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. Good things, uh, things that are not as good, things that are bringing us joy, things that are providing us with challenges that perhaps we've never uh, confronted before. But Father, we thank you that we come to you, the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-together good and all-comforting God. We ask that you might refresh us, strengthen us, and teach us. And Father, we pray that you would change us to be more like Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my pet hates is board games. I knew this would happen. I knew it. I knew it. I was stressing about saying that all week. Actually, there, there you go, in front of you guys. I, one of my pet hates is board games. I think they are appropriately named because they bore me witless. One of my issues is, <laughs> one of my issues is that my kids seem to love them. If they were allowed to, they'd be up all night playing Monopoly, Pictionary, and you know, the like. Um, let me say, if you have a party and you don't want me to come, 
Just mention that you'll be playing board games and I'll be sure to stay at home. Um, Adele, Adele is similar to me, perhaps not as militant um, as me, um, except there are some games that Adele likes. I can talk about her today because she's not here, she's unwell. Um, there you go. But uh, Adele likes those kind of let's get to know each other kind of games. Um, you know, let's share our deepest thoughts, passions, dreams, and anxieties. Um, she loves them. She gets excited when any kind of version of the Myers-Briggs kind of thing comes out, you know, where everyone gets to sort of do some survey and work out what category they kind of fit into, um, find out who they really are like. Um, I don't know if that's your thing, but uh, Adele also really loves, have you heard of the book, The Five Love Languages? Have you heard of that one? Um, it's a book that was published some time ago and it's sort of all over the place and I don't know, I find it's often what married couples kind of do or engaged couples do. They sort of work out how best am I going to be loved and you kind of fit into the, one of these five languages of love, whether that's like acts of service or um, words of affirmation and, and things like that. Adele kind of loves it. Um, I don't know, there you go. Um, here, here's an example of some of the things that you can, the questions you're asked to determine what your love language might be. Um, here they are. I like it when you give me notes of affirmation. Uh, or I like it when you hug me. Or I like to spend time one-on-one -on -one with you. I feel loved, here's another one. I feel loved when you provide me with practical help. Another one, I like to be close to you. Another one, I like it when you tell me how attractive or handsome I am. I'd like there to be one that says, I'd like it if you would stop asking me these questions and let me get back to reading my book. That's what I would love. Um, and if you've never met me before, you're probably getting this picture of I'm just this boring, grumpy old guy, which I was told that's who I am last night by my wife, actually. There you go. Um, it's my observation, right, and I think it's true in general that women like these kind of questions more than men. Um, I think it's more of a woman's thing, not simply just a difference. I actually think it's more of a female virtue and a male vice, that we want to find ways to express our love for the other person. So I'm not surprised, right, when you open up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that we find the people who show lavish displays of love for the Lord Jesus Christ are usually women. Like the woman who with her tears washed away the dirt off Jesus' feet with her hair and then wiped his feet with her hair, sorry. Like the widow, end of Mark chapter 12, who simply had two copper coins and gave them all to Jesus. At the, and to God in the temple treasury. It's women who seem to display deep affection for Jesus. And it's often the men who sort of stand by, critical of the lavishness and a little bit cynical. And we see today as we arrive in Mark chapter 14, as we can sit, continue to, to travel with Jesus to Calvary and where he lays his life down for the sins of the world, we see today another act of, of lavish love. Uh, back in chapter 11 of Mark's Gospel, if you haven't been with us, if you haven't really tracked through Mark's Gospel before, you go back to Mark chapter 11, we're told that Jesus enters into Jerusalem, uh, comes into Jerusalem finally. Mark chapter 12, he then engages in all these debates with sort of the religious leaders of the day about some really important uh, issues like marriage and resurrection and paying taxes, Mark 12. And then Jesus prophesied, Mark chapter 13, the fall of Jerusalem and then his second coming. And in the background all the time has been this plot 
sort of a cynical political plot to see Jesus out of the picture through a death of some kind or another. And now we find ourselves in the last kind of hours of Jesus' life on earth. Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, he's in a small town called Bethany. We thought about Bethany a couple of weeks ago when Jesus kind of arrived into Jerusalem. Bethany sits about two kilometres outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's like the gateway into Jerusalem. And if you were in Bethany, you'd sort of have these tingles of excitement if you were a Jewish person in particular. Um, It's far enough away from Jerusalem to give Jesus a little bit of privacy Uh, from the big crowds that continue to kind of gather around him and follow him. It's near enough, Bethany, to the centre of Jerusalem for Jesus to kind of get in there if he needs to in like an hour or something like that. Uh, Mark 14 verse 1 reminds us that it's Passover time um, and, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, will be heaving with pilgrims, right? The population of Jerusalem would probably swell from like 30,000 normally to about 200,000. So it's a bit like Victor Harbour and Port Elliot during the summer. Um, the numbers swell. So it was in Jerusalem. So Jesus moves away to a little place outside of Jerusalem to have dinner with some friends. He's staying at the home of a man named Simon the leper, which I presume means that the Lord Jesus Christ healed Simon. So Simon's welcomed him in. His house seems big enough to accommodate Simon himself and Jesus and the disciples. And also, I don't know if you know this, but probably Lazarus is at this meal. I don't know if you know who Lazarus is, but Lazarus died and Jesus brought him back to life, resurrected him from the dead. Um, Jesus, uh, Lazarus was lying in a tomb and Jesus just said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out alive and well. Although he'd been in there a little while, I like how the King James Version says, and he stinketh. There you go, probably because he'd been dead for a little while. But Jesus, with all his power, just raised him to life. And Lazarus, mentioned in John's account of this episode, is probably at this dinner party. It's quite amazing. So we're reminded about the reality of resurrection from the dead. Apparently it was real and apparently it's stuck. Lazarus is still around and he's apparently eating. How cool is that? So there's a feast probably to celebrate and say thanks to Jesus. That's what we were thinking about. And then we're told that a woman came in and anointed Jesus with perfume. This was not unusual. Um, That's how you would welcome a guest sort of in those days with perfume. Interestingly, in Mark's account of this episode, we don't get her name. She's nameless. John, in his gospel account, does give us the name. We're told that it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. But Mark keeps her nameless. I wonder why. I think think Mark keeps her nameless because he doesn't want us to think, ah, you know, that's Mary. She's a little bit OTT, if you know a bit about Mary, you know. You know, don't take what Mary does too seriously. She's just a bit over the top. No, 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 Mark and Matthew 2 don't give us her name because you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ takes what she does very seriously. And Mark emphasises the extravagance and the lavishness of her gift to Jesus. Mark 14, verse 3, if you have it open in front of her, she came, this woman came, with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. It's a sensual account as we see this 
intimate act and we're encouraged to, to smell the perfume and to smell, the smell of the perfume would probably pervade the house. I was gonna put a note up on Slack actually during the week, say, bring your favorite bottle of perfume and when you come to church, spray it around. You know, so we get this sort of wafting. Then I thought, no, there'd be someone who has some crazy reaction and then church gets shut down because we have to, you know, anyway. But you, that's the idea, you're like you're in this room and this perfume has been spilt and there's this smell in the air. It is by any measure an extravagant, a lavish act of devotion to Jesus. It was about half a litre of a perfume, perfume called nard, a large amount, really expensive. For those of us who like details, if you're a details person, the perfume nard is harvested from the root and the spike of the nard plant in northern India. It's pure nard. Which kind of begs the question, right? Where did a simple Judean woman find this perfume worth so much? Maybe it was a, fa a family heirloom. Something that had been in the family for a while. I'm sure, right, she didn't have a cupboard just full of jars of this alabaster perfume. It, was, it cost her perhaps everything. Really expensive. And yet those around her in verse 4 say, why this waste? Why this waste? I had a friend in Sydney who came to our church for a while, the church that I was serving at in Sydney. He was a lovely, wealthy Chinese man who became a follower of Jesus. Um, he was a Buddhist and um, he had this huge gold Buddha in his home and he told me once that it was worth about $100,000. Um, when he turned to Christ, he got into the boat that he owned on Sydney Harbour with his gold Buddha and dropped the Buddha into the harbour. Two things came to mind. I want to get a boat and go and find it. Um, <laughs> the other, but when, I, when, he, when he told me this, I said, man, brother, that's, a, that's an extraordinary, wonderful thing to do. Wow. Internally, I'm going, you did what? You could have sold the Buddha and funded a missionary overseas. You could have, we could have put on two other associate pastors at our church and won the world for Jesus. What a waste. Which are the words of the disciples, yeah? But Jesus doesn't rebuke the woman. Jesus doesn't criticize her. They're angry they're indignant. The, the original language, the Greek language, you know, which the New Testament's written in, kind of connotes, I read, they scolded her like a bunch of snorting, angry horses. How's that? They're angry. They're indignant because they say, we could have given the money to the poor. Now, I don't, I don't doubt that they were genuine, brothers and sisters. They had a concern for the poor, as did Jesus. For three years, Jesus had cared for the poor. He dined with the poor. But Jesus rebukes the onlookers. Have a look at verse six. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The disciples are concerned for the poor, and that is good and right for Jesus' disciples. Jesus shares that concern, and so Jesus' words, the poor will always be with you, are not demeaning of the destitute at all, no way. He's not saying don't bother trying to make poverty history. 
This is what he's saying. Any day and every day, you are able to show your love tangibly for the poor, but you can't any day and every day show your love for me. Because here's the difference. Tomorrow the poor will be with you. Tomorrow I won't be with you. Tomorrow you can look into the face of the poor, but tomorrow you won't look into my face for I will have gone. I will have died for the sins of the world. And we're told this woman anointed Jesus with perfume for his burial, verse 8. She's grasped, seemingly, something that the disciples haven't grasped that somehow this man, Jesus, was going to Jerusalem to die for her, to show his amazing love for her. Now, how much, how much of the cross and its significance this woman grasped, we don't know. But the fact that it's Passover time, a time when God's people gathered together to remember and celebrate the sacrifice of a perfect lamb, so that they could be free and forgiven and out of slavery and oppression. The fact that Jesus had said back in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the fact that I believe women grasp deep spiritual things quicker than men suggests to me that this woman understood a fair bit about what Jesus was about to go through for the sake of the world. She knew that Jesus' death on the cross was for her and was a demonstration of his deep, deep love for her. And so she anoints him. She anoints him. And Jesus says, verse 9, Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In other words, in the years to come, what she has done will be a model, will be a a paradigm for how followers of Jesus express their love for him. For wherever the gospel is preached, people will remember what she has done. She is in many ways an example par excellence of a right response to the death of Christ, a lavish display of love. Her lavish display of love, if you've been following through Mark's gospel, is just an extraordinary sort of juxtaposition against other responses to Jesus, namely the response of, let's get him out of here. He's a danger to us. Because there's something else in the passage. Did you see how our passage this morning began and ends? Um, Verse 1 and 2 and then verses 10 and 11. Begins with and ends with a plot for the Jewish religious leaders to kill Jesus. Mark 14, verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious heavyweights, were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. If you come down with me to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Here is a woman who gave all she had to the one who would save her soul. Here is a man who sold his soul for a few pieces of silver. And there you see the heart of this woman 
And there you see the heart of this man. Well, that's the story. It's an interesting story, interesting incident to say the least. One of the questions I had, why would anyone do this? It's definitely not a guy thing to do, I reckon. But I wonder also how many women here would put their hand up to do such a thing. It's kind of out there. What does it say to us? Um, I've, I've preached on this passage before. The last time I preached on this passage was back in 2012 at the first church I served at after I sort of got spat out of theological college. And I thought I knew everything, right? I thought I was like the, I was going to change the world. I've been to theological college. I knew Jesus. I knew two ways to live. Bam, I'm ready, you know. So here I am, and I stood up in front of the congregations that I was responsible for, and guess what I did? I made them feel really guilty, really guilty. Um, I don't often quote myself in sermons. In fact, I think this might be the first time I've ever quoted myself. Um, Thankfully, this is not published. Um, But uh, let me read to you. This is what I said to a poor, unsuspecting group of people, two groups, shortly after I was working in the church. Um, Quote me. Here we go. Oh, my gosh. This is terrible. If this woman gave everything and she knew less about Jesus' death than we do, then how much more should we give? We know far more of what Jesus' death meant. We know more of the length, width, and height, and depth of God's love for us in Christ. Therefore, how much more should we give? So I challenge you to dig deep. Take your most precious item, your sailing boat, your European car, your iPhone. I don't know what sort of iPhone it was back there. Probably like the iPhone 2? I don't know. Anyway, um, Give them over to Jesus. Show him how much you love him. Do it. Do that. Don't delay. And then no one came back to church next week. No. Um, Striking for me in this passage how no one had to command this woman to give the perfume. She just did it spontaneously. No one had to command the woman to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. No one had to tell the widow to give her two miners, two copper coins, all she had to the temple treasury. No one had to challenge Zacchaeus to pay back all that he'd taken and give half of it to the poor. No one had to command them. They just did it spontaneously. Because, brothers and sisters, it's very, very hard to command lavish love. I know someone who has this thing where he says, I must tell my wife that I love her every day. Oh my gosh, it's 3.30. I'd better tell my wife that I love her. You know, it doesn't doesn't work that way. Here's the thing. Here's how the whole Christian life works. We love because he first loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because he first loved us. That's the whole way the Christian life works. That's the whole way our response to the gospel works. It's not we love enough and then he loves us and we keep on loving. No, it's we love because he loved us first. If you're into grammar, the indicative comes before the imperative. This is what God has done. Now go and do this. When you grasp the wonder of God's love for you, I think we're called to respond spontaneously and lavishly. You know, when I was at theological college, I studied with students who'd given up everything to serve Christ and his church. 
Some people I studied with had sold their houses to get to college. Some people had left really well-paid jobs to go and learn. Others used all their savings to get to college and to prepare for a life of serving Christ. In my year, there were a couple who'd come all the way from the Netherlands to learn, do theology, and, and they wanted to be missionaries even in Australia. And guess what? Their parents were so angry with them. Bitter. They'd say things like, you're both throwing away your lives, you're wasting your life. Sound familiar? Why this waste? I think Jesus would say to those parents, stop bothering them. They are doing a beautiful thing for me. I don't want to trivialise this amazing story and this beautiful woman by talking about the five love languages. But it does seem again and again and again and again that when men and women show their love for Jesus in the Gospels, a lavish love, two things stand out. Firstly, they seem to grasp the wonder of Christ's death for them on the cross. They seem to grasp, however imperfectly, something of the wonder and the depth of Christ's love for them on the cross. That's my hope every week. That's the elders, the leaders of this church hope every week here on Sundays and in our discipleship groups that meet weekly that we grasp whenever we get together something of the amazing love of Christ for you in giving his life for you on the cross and that you'd realise the horror and the depth of your sin, my sin, that meant it was necessary for Jesus to be smashed to death for you on a cross. That's why in our preaching, that's why in our singing, we must come back again and again and again and again and again and again to the cross of Christ. So as I was thinking about this, I'm just drawn to the words of Isaac Watts. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We look at the Gospels, men and women seem to show lavish love, spontaneous love for Jesus because they get something of the depth and the wonder of Jesus' death on the cross. But secondly, it seems like in the Gospels, this love for Christ is also expressed tangibly, not just in words, but tangible acts of love. I don't know, did you notice in our story that the woman in this story says how much? Nothing. She simply acts. She gives everything. This woman's actions show in a very tangible way the worth that she ascribes to Jesus. She, this woman draws me out here as, as a follower of Jesus so much. I, I wonder if I was in her situation, if I was a call to anoint Jesus, that I might reach for my, I don't know, Coles brand vegetable oil, or if I was feeling particularly generous, I might go for the Zara Eau de Toilette, $29.95 at Burnside Zara. I don't know. 
But there's a real cost in this act for this woman, a year's wages. That's what this jar of alabaster perfume was worth, a year's wages. Extraordinary. It's an extravagant gesture. It's a wild and gratuitous, wasteful act of devotion that I think shows you and me as followers of Jesus all the possibilities before us of how we too can show our lavish love for Jesus. Challenges me. What does it look like for me to show my love for the Lord in tangible ways? Perhaps her example can embolden you and me to our own nard moments. That's what I was thinking about. You know, so nard is the fragrance that she uses. And I'm like, what are my nard moments? How am I going about narding things all the time? What's your nard moment going to be? I don't know, the, the, the waste of a year's wages to study at Bible College of South Australia? The waste of a life to serve the Lord in some God-forsaken country overseas? The waste of a year's wages to help alleviate the suffering of the poor? And can I just say on that, I want to be clear that giving to and serving the poor is a legitimate expression of Christian discipleship. Giving and serving the poorer people among our church family giving and serving the poor in our local community, in our city and overseas. What are you doing? What am I doing? You know, just maybe some of our more extravagant acts of devotion to Jesus might make their way to the poor. I'll leave that one for you to to pray about, to think about. What I want us to see clearly this morning is that our devotion to Jesus Our love for Christ is to be expressed tangibly. The woman in this passage, as I said before, she draws me out here. I I serve Christ, but I don't often see myself or think of myself as devoted. I'm not particularly one for the extravagant word or or the grand gesture. Although I can sit back and criticize with the best of them when I see other Christians doing kind of crazy things in the name of Jesus extravagant language they use, or radical generosity, the -the off-the-chart mission idea. I can criticise that. But this woman draws me out. What does my love and devotion for Jesus look like tangibly? I just don't want to sing about my devotion. I want to live a life that reflects the worth of Jesus. An older brother in Christ that I know, his name's Mike, got a daughter named Pippa. Many years ago, um, Pippa gave her mum a wonderful birthday gift, um, a four-week holiday to Europe for them both. Um, Pippa, when she was younger, she worked as a waitress. Um, She was about 17 years old. She didn't have a lot of money. Um, I'm pretty sure that she probably used all of her savings to afford that trip for her mum. Why did she do it? It's because she loved her mum so much. It was her way of expressing to her mum how much she loved her. Pippa, she's now in her early 30s, and according to Mike, her mum is still her best friend. And that gift showed both how much she loved her mum and also was a measure of the value of her mother to her. 
See, that is right. When, when we love the Lord Jesus Christ like this, we show how much we value him, his love, his beauty, his kindness, his glory, his mission, his grace. It's a measure of the value we place on the Lord Jesus Christ. So a question for us all. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? I was at a missions conference some time ago in Sydney and I met a guy there who then went on to be a missionary over in Argentina. Um, I bumped into him at a function last February in Sydney before everything kind of shut down. And uh, this guy, John, who I hadn't seen for years and years and years, just sort of walked over to me. Um, and his first words to me weren't, hey, Simon, how are you? They weren't, oh, Simon, what are you doing now? Where are you working now? His first words were, Simon, do you still love Jesus? Do you still love Jesus? To be honest, I think to this day that is the best question I've ever been asked. Because that question zooms on in on what really matters, doesn't it? Simon, are you still amazed at the cross? Simon, are you still amazed by God's grace? Simon, do you still glory in the beauty of Jesus? Simon, do you still love Jesus? As I close, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we praise you and thank you for uh, this story that's been recorded for us in the Gospels, that just hours before Jesus laid down his life for the world, this woman lavishly, tangibly showed her love for Jesus. Father, thank you for the way that she grasped, however imperfectly, something of the magnitude of what Jesus was about to do, not just for her, but for the whole world. And Father, we just as we sit and gather here this morning, as those, many of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, know the horror of our sin and yet the beauty of his death to cover our sin. Father, we just pray for ourselves that we too would be more like her and Father, that we would be empowered by your spirit to do things that are just lavish and maybe thought of by the world as ridiculous and over the top and yet would just convey to a watching world just how much we ascribe worth and value to Jesus. So Father, not at all motivated by guilt, but entirely motivated by your love, send us out into the world this week and this month until we see Jesus and cause us by your spirit, empowered by your love, to do tangible, radical acts of love for all people, the poor included, for their good and your glory. 
Father, make us, we pray, more devoted, more in love with Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.